Our text this morning is from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. And we'll read those words again. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him, And keep his commands. After the preaching of God's word, we'll sing in response Psalm 25, stanzas 5, 7, and 10. Brothers and sisters, in the Church of Jesus Christ, there's a good number of words that we hear on a regular basis. Come to a worship service on any given Sunday, and quite likely you'll pick up on several key terms. Gospel is one, salvation's another, law, sin, forgiveness, scripture. These are words that we'll hear often in sermons, in Bible readings, and in our prayers. We could include a bunch more words with that list, but we're going to add just one. And that word is covenant. For we talk about covenant baptism, covenant law, and covenant education. At the Lord's Supper, we hear about the new covenant and Christ's blood. Covenant as a word is well known. But the thing with familiar words like this is we don't always understand what they mean. In fact, many of us might assume that we know what the covenant is all about, but when asked to give a definition or description, we have a hard time. What is it? Who's in it? And what's it for? There's so much that we can say about the covenant, but it's good to begin simply. What do we mean when we talk about God establishing a covenant with believers and their children? Well, essentially, a covenant is a living relationship between two parties. Two groups or two people enter into a formal bond. They make promises to each other. They vow their loyalty. They seal this union with a ceremony. And from that day on, they're together in covenant. An example of this is marriage. The Bible calls marriage a covenant between a man and a woman. And that's a helpful image for us to ponder because it illustrates that a covenant is not some lifeless agreement, some stale legal contract. On the contrary, for marriage is a relationship, a relationship that needs to be alive. Think of what makes a good marriage, love and loyalty, communication and commitment. These same things must characterize the covenant between the Lord and us. Indeed, what we'll keep coming back to today is that God's covenant with his people is a relationship. It's a living bond. From day to day, then, it has a condition. It has a status. So let's all think about this, beloved How is your relationship with God at the moment? 
Is it strong? Is it weak? Is it indifferent? How is your connection to the Lord? That's a personal question, but each one of us must wrestle with it, and each one of us must seek ways to make that relationship stronger. And so this morning we focus on just one verse from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. And we look at it under this theme, we are living in covenant with the Lord. We'll consider four things, the covenant God, the covenant people, the covenant life, and the covenant blessing. Now, when we talk about God's relationship with us, we need to go back to the very beginning. Because for as long as there have been humans walking this earth, God has desired to have fellowship with them. Some have even said that's why God created us. He wanted companionship. He wanted friendship, the worship of other beings. But we know God needs nothing and nobody. He would have been perfectly fine without us. And yet God did create human beings too, and for the glory of his name, brought them into a relationship with himself. Already in paradise, there was a living connection. As God the creator walked with man and woman, and even talked with them. Maybe it wasn't called a covenant yet, but there was certainly a bond of love. The plan was that Adam and Eve would rightly know God and enjoy his presence forever. That's how it should have been. But that blessed relationship we know was shattered on the rocks of human rebellion. Instead of God's pure blessing, he had to apply his righteous curse. And yet, praise be to God, that wasn't the end of it. God yet preserved a remnant who would honor him. Even as wickedness swept the earth, the Lord maintained a people for himself. We need only think of his abiding grace to Abel, to Enoch, to Noah and his family. Then, centuries later, when it seemed the true knowledge of God was dying out, he turned that long-standing loyalty into something more formal. The Lord appeared to Abraham, a pagan living in Ur, and with him entered into covenant. That's what it was called for the very first time, a covenant built on promise and obligation, signed and sealed with that ceremony of blood. From Abraham, God would make a great people. To Abraham, God would give a great land. From Abraham would come kings, even the Messiah himself. Now, to be sure, these things did not happen straight away. Abraham's descendants ended up not in the promised land, but in Egypt, where they were placed under a yoke of slavery. It seemed for a time that God had forgotten his promise, and yet he never does. He brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. He led them to Mount Sinai, where God again avowed his love renewing that covenant with the sprinkling of blood. That was 40 years ago, 40 years before our text. But since that time, this marriage between God and his bride has gone through more of the same. Israel's discontent, then unfaithfulness. God's anger, then forgiveness and restoration. 
So now as the Israelites stand on the plains of Moab, you can say that covenant is being renewed once more. Despite everything, God has not given up. Despite the most shocking betrayals of his people, the relationship would endure. And that's because the covenant, beloved, is wholly God's idea. Earlier we spoke of how marriage is a good example of a covenant. Yet there's also a major difference here. For a marriage to work, both parties have to be on the same page. Sure, the one person might initiate it, you know, getting down on one knee and popping the question. But the other person also has to respond positively if that bond will ever come to be. The Lord has a relationship with us, and the entire thing is his project. He didn't just take the first step and then wonder where it would go from there. He didn't put in his request and then depend on us to answer. No, God decided to start it, and then he himself brought the covenant about. We see that in the language of our text. Moses says there, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God keeping his covenant of love. It's his. His covenant. He established it, taking the initiative and it receiving a people for himself. And why did he do that? Well, just consider verse 8. It was because the Lord your God loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers. There's the source of the covenant, the eternal wellspring. It is God and his love. Notice that's even what God calls his relationship with us in 7 verse 9. It's a covenant of love. Now we all know that love is one of God's attributes. God is love, that famous text tells us. And to us that sounds so elementary sometimes, almost too easy. We might want to add all kinds of qualifications and fine print to such a text. But that misses the point and overlooks the beauty. God has made a covenant of love because this is who God is. This is what God does. Even when we cast our eyes at idols, he loves. Even when we are unfaithful, he loves. Even when we forget God time and time again, like the Israelites did, even then, God loves. You could say there's no logical reason for him to do so. But for the sake of Jesus Christ, because of that blood, that was once poured out, God loves. That's the divine love we get to experience each and every day. We might forget that sometimes, forget how much this love fills our lives. We forget it because we have a way of presuming upon God's blessings. That we have family and work and health, that we have God's word and our daily bread, that we can enjoy the communion of saints that we live in a peaceful country, the list goes on. Let's remember that none of these things are deserved. 
but that all of them are gifts. Gifts of God's love, divine deposits of his favor toward us. And if God's love is the source of the covenant, then his faithfulness is the guarantee. That's how Moses describes the Lord's commitment to his people in our text. He is the faithful God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations. Yes, every other God is fickle and unreliable. The Israelites could think of those pagan gods who were ready to be persuaded by the right sacrifice. We can think of those idols today in our own lives that are popular for a time and then fade away. In not one of them can we put our trust. God alone is worthy of our confidence because he is faithful. And evidence of his faithfulness is not hard to find. Think of his commitment to Adam and Eve, even when they rebelled. Think of his commitment to Abraham, even when he tried to figure things out on his own. Think of God's faithfulness to Israel. Even after countless mutinies, even after hundreds of years, four decades of wandering, even then, God was faithful. And think of God's commitment to us. Think of how God has never left us. How he has never forgotten us. How God has never abandoned us in a place where we're all alone. God is faithful. God keeps his covenant. In times of anxiety and trouble and heartache, that brings us peace. In times of guilt for all our sin, that brings us assurance. The Lord is good, and his love endures forever. As they enter the land, Moses wants the Israelites to know who they are. It's as if he holds up a mirror to them so that they can see it clearly. As he tells them in verse 6, You are a people holy to the Lord your God, for the Lord your God has chosen you. Those in covenant with God have a marvelous privilege. If we remember to look into the mirror of God's word, that can put a song in our hearts every day. As Moses says in our text, The Lord God is our God. That's something to hold on to. The Lord God is our God. Now as we ponder being God's people, we must be warned of a danger. The danger of assuming that it's because of us. We might think God loves us because we're so lovable. For isn't that how we look at most human relationships? We like those who are like us. We'll be kind to those who are kind to us. If God's so committed to us, then we conclude, surely we have done something to earn it. Yes, human pride is always quick to snatch glory for itself. And yet before we can do so, Moses reminds us of the covenant source. Look at 7 verse 7. 
the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It's certainly not physical size or any outward appearance that earns God's favor. If God looked at such things, there was an array of nations besides Israel he could have picked. We don't amount to much, and yet it's us that God has chosen. Or maybe we think God likes us because we're better behaved than many others. After all, I think we can always think of someone who is worse than us. We're not murderers or drug dealers. We're not perverts or pedophiles. We're not thieves or blasphemers. But again, Moses warns the people over in 9 verse 4. He says to them, After the Lord your God has driven the nations out before you, do not say to yourself, The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it's not because of our righteousness. We must not push ourselves forward for praise because it has nothing to do with our integrity or our faithfulness or our goodness. No, we look in that mirror and we face the facts. In ourselves, we're small. In ourselves, we're weak. In ourselves, we've got nothing to offer God except sin and unfaithfulness. Yet with such a people as this, God wants fellowship. And God picks such a people with a definite purpose. God knew the Israelites had no chance of success in the land. Israel was much smaller than those nations they were supposed to drive out. The Israelites were good at shepherding flocks, not waging war. What's more, their Canaanite opponents were already dug into their positions. All the odds were stacked up against God's people. Well, those are just the kind of odds that God likes. For all the more then could God show his greatness. Through the sheer inability of his people, it would be seen that nothing is impossible for the Lord. And just look at how the conquest began. Jericho's walls fell without so much as a human finger being laid upon them. That's what salvation is all about. For the glory of his name, God helps a people who cannot help themselves. God finds a people who are hopelessly lost. God makes righteous a nation that is completely sinful. Yes, he loves those who are perfectly unlovable. He loves even us. And God does this so that all the peoples will say, so that the nations will stand up and marvel. Look at what God has done. Look how he's gone and saved even them. His power is made perfect in our weakness. As Paul says, God does this so that no one may boast before him. Indeed, there's no room for boasting. His grace must change how we think. If we don't deserve anything from the Lord, how should we view the people around us, such as your fellow saints? 
You are just as sinful as they are, just as weak, just as prone to failure, just as dependent on God's favor. That means we ought to treat one another with much patience, with much kindness, with much love and compassion. Or how do you look at unbelievers? Think of what we were. Think of what we would have been outside of God's covenant. Yes, we would be just like them, realizing that we have been given God's grace as his people. We ought to be concerned for those who are outside of us, those who are strangers to God's grace. We should be eager to share with them the things that we know. Now, we all understand that every covenant contains two parts, promise and obligation. That is, beloved, there are things that God expects of us as his people. And Moses puts one of these responses front and center in our text, 7 verse 9. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He calls us To know the Lord. We have to see that knowing in the right light. It's not simply a theoretical knowledge, an awareness of assorted facts about God. Rather, Scripture always speaks of knowing God as an intimate knowledge. It's a close awareness, a personal familiarity, an understanding of God that goes beneath the surface. As God's people, we must know the Lord we worship. And beloved, there is no secret to how this knowledge is acquired. It is gained through daily communion with the Lord. It is gained through seeking his listening ear in prayer. Seeking his radiant face in worship. Seeking his perfect wisdom in the word. Yes, as Christians, we all know about God. We've heard of him for so many years. But the challenge for us is to know God better, to know God more intimately. Are we ready to do that? Are we ready to embrace that knowledge most worth knowing? We must know, as Moses says, that the Lord our God is God. Implied in that command is also a warning against idolatry. Deuteronomy is full of God's demand that we worship him alone. He's a jealous God, a God who demands loyalty. He's a husband who expects unblemished faithfulness. And so let us ask, who really deserves our praise? Who or what in this life deserves our constant affection, our constant attention. Surely it's not our money or our sports. Surely it's not our looks or our family. Surely it's not ourselves. No, who is God? Moses tells us, only the Lord your God is God. 
And following from that is another response to God's covenant. He asks that we love him in return. Now, love is something we all find hard to put into practice. We wonder, how can we really express our love to those around us? And the same applies for God. From day to day, how can you and I show that we actually love the Lord? We know we love him, but how do we express it? Well, Scripture always teaches that lovers of God are loyal to his word. Think of what Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And that's what Moses says too. God blesses those who love him and keep his commands. That then is what we must give our attention to. That's what we must reflect upon as individual believers, all of us. How can I better keep God's word? How can I stay away from sin? How can I fight against my tendency to pride? My inclination to greed? How can I overcome my love for gossip? Or my lust for pleasure? More than that, how can I do what is right? How can I help my neighbor? How can I share what I've been given? How can I worship this God faithfully even when it's not Sunday? We must devote our lives to keeping the word of God. And in this we realize that a God-pleasing life is not something that comes naturally. Beloved, it's something that has to be learned. Sometimes we make it sound so easy. This is all I have to do, just obey God's law. And that's probably what the Israelites thought too. As they stood there listening to Moses' words, it all seemed so uncomplicated and so straightforward. God loved them so much. How could they ever think of doing anything else than obeying his word? How could they not love him in return? But Moses knew well the dangers that lay ahead. They were entering a country littered with shrines to false gods, a country known for its immoral religious practice, a country whose heathen neighbors led seemingly happy, godless lives. And with all those pressures, it would not be easy for the Israelites. It's not easy for us either. The devil, the world, our own flesh constantly oppose us. But God gives grace for the covenant life. And he gives blessing when we obey. Moses is not a fortune teller. He can't say for sure what will happen to the Israelites in the land. But Moses does know this. If God's people will be faithful, they will receive his blessing. As Moses says, God keeps his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands, God will bless. But before we talk about that promise of blessing, we need to consider its opposite. It follows in the very next verse, but those who hate him, 
he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. That's a striking contrast. That's the other side of covenant blessing, covenant curse. Because God is a perfectly just God, he has the right to punish those who do not honor his demands. Those who break this relationship with their stubborn sin. The Israelites would hear all about it. Later in Deuteronomy, right near the end of his speech, Moses will outline all the curses on the disobedient. Listen to a few words from chapter 28. Moses says, You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. And on it goes the curses on disobedience. Before we dismiss those as an Old Testament thing, think of the warnings that Jesus and the apostles also gave. They always said that those who do not repent, especially from among God's people, those will be shut out of Christ's kingdom. In fact, punishment on rebellious members of the covenant is even more severe. After giving us so much, God has every right to expect our faithful response. And that indeed is the amazing part of it. God expects our response. But God will still bless his people when we do obey When we devote ourselves humbly to doing God's will, God generously grants a share of his kindness. God tells us that life is better when we faithfully walk with him. Life is better when this relationship, when your relationship with God receives your daily attention. Then we experience God's favor in new ways then we receive his mercy in new and heaping measures. Does that mean that if we're faithful, we'll never get sick? Does that mean we'll always receive the desires of our hearts, those good and worthwhile things we pray for year after year? Does God's promise of blessing mean that every Christian will be wealthy and all will live to a good old age? Beloved, we all know that it doesn't happen. We know that all of life is not milk and honey. But we understand this. It's not as if those Old Testament promises have expired. No, they've been replaced. Replaced by things far greater in Jesus Christ. Those who honor God's covenant. This is God's promise. Those who honor God's covenant will be able to declare, God has blessed me in so many ways. We have the blessing of peace in Christ. We have the blessing of his grace. We have the blessing of his spirit. Why, when we make our relationship with God our priority, when we nurture and protect this bond, we can expect Not just blessing in this life. We can expect blessing forever. 
He promised to bless Israel with that prosperous land. And us too, beloved, he promises to give land. Not a piece of real estate in the Middle East. No, he promises to give us the renewed heavens and the renewed earth. God promises us a place free of sin and brokenness and death. He promises us a place filled with his holy presence. He promises us a place where we will walk with him again and even talk with him as Adam and Eve once did. That's our never-fading inheritance. And this promise, this promise of eternal blessing gives great seriousness to the covenant. It's with good reason that Moses will later end his sermon on this very point. Just as he departs for glory, Moses wants the people to think about it. And God wants us to think about it too. The options are clearly set before us. Will we receive that blessing or will we receive those curses? As Moses says, will we choose life or will we choose death? Will we know this God, love this God, obey this God or not? Yes, God's faithfulness to us is beyond any question. It cannot be doubted. But what about ours to him? Will we walk with the Lord? Each and every day will we live with him in a relationship of love. It's such a life that God will certainly bless. Amen.